and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your sometimes host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm thrilled again to be in the studio today with my lovely co-hosts, LARB managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB editor-at-large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hi, Eric. Hi, Eric. So today we're going back into the archive to bring you one of our favorite interviews, which was the interview we did with Frederick Tooten, author of My Young Life, a memoir and biography of his life growing up. And we thought that in these particularly troubled times that we find ourselves in, Fred's story is a particularly inspiring one. Yeah, and the conversation was just so lovely and Listeners will hear what a what a lovely human Fred is. This was our first time talking to him. I we had none. I don't think anyone knew him beforehand, but it was kind of like talking to an old friend right away. And with an amazing Brooklyn accent. With, an, with a, an amazing Brooklyn accent and a, a person who had happened to write a great book. Mm-hmm. But also when we hung up, and I think about this all the time, or when I talk about this conversation, I think about this is when we were all hanging up and saying goodbye. Fred said, "You guys hang up first. <laughs> you, you know, you hang up first. And then it was just, yeah. um, it was just so, it was such a lovely conversation. It really was. It really was. Yeah. I like this book a lot, too. All right. And before we head into the conversation, are you guys doing anything fun for Thanksgiving? I'm going to Joshua Tree. Ooh. Yeah. I normally am actually out in Palm Springs every Thanksgiving, but yeah. this Thanksgiving we're staying in Los Angeles. Hmm. I'll be in Baja. Ooh, oh, that sounds nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That does sound nice. It does sound nice. I want Kate's Thanksgiving. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Well, listeners, wherever you are, we hope that you are enjoying time with friends and family as trying as they sometimes can be and that you are getting into the spirit of the season. So without further ado, we'll shift over to our conversation with Frederick Tooten, author of My Young Life. We're excited to have Fred Tutton on the phone with us today. Fred is the author of five novels, as well as a short story collection called Self-Portraits, Fictions. He is also the author, most recently, of the memoir My Young Life. His short stories, art, and film criticism have all appeared in places including Art Forum, The New York Times, Vogue, Granta, and Harper's. Fred is also the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship for Fiction and the Award for Distinguished Writing from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Welcome to the show, Fred. Oh, thank you so much. That was quite an introduction. Yeah, I forgot who I was when you read them all. Well, we're always here to remind you. I guess I did write those books. Yeah, I guess it was me. (laughs) And if it wasn't, you're not telling. The (laughs) thing that I wanted to start off with is what made you want to write a memoir after spending so much of your writing and artistic time on fiction, art, and criticism? Well, a few things to say about that. But I want to go back to my first novel, The Adventures of Mao on the Long March. Okay. It's a radical approach to fiction. I was deliberately thinking how I did not want to write an autobiographical first novel. I did not want to do that. I felt it was facile. It was done a hundred times, sometimes, of course, very well. There's a whole world of that that's beautiful and great and noble. But it wasn't for me. I thought I wanted to do something distinctly different. In fact, because it was such hubris, I wanted to do something that was radical and change the form of the novel itself. So I wrote this book, Adventures of a Mountain Along Bosch, where I wanted no visible personality, not mine especially, involved in it, as if some kind of Olympian thing had constructed it. It's made up of quotations. There's a linear narrative, almost a kind of textbook narrative of Mao's long march, 9,000 long march across China when they were fleeing the Japanese invaders. 
and then they're intercut with parodies of writers, parodies of art writing, all that stuff, ending with a long interview with Mao Zedong, who talks about contemporary conceptual art and other things that, of course, he would probably never know about or care about. But anyway, <laughs> I did that for that reason. I felt always that there's something, this auto-fiction business is just too easy, and it's not, it doesn't reach far enough. And I know fundamentally, except maybe in a few cases, maybe Sons and Lovers, the D.H. Lawrence novel, mm. a few other novels like that, or maybe Look Home and Angel when I was a kid, the Thomas Wolfe book, where it was exciting when you know when you were young and you read Thomas Wolfe, it was luscious and beautiful. Now he seems so, so sentimental and corny. But I'm sorry he's not. I'm sorry he's been written out of the canon because he's better than people think he is. But maybe he's not as good as he thought he was. Anyway, the long and short of it is, I know I'm, I'm avoiding the question, but I'm not trying to evade it. <laughs> the long and short of it is this: I thought a certain moment has come. I'm now I'm now 82 years old. And when I started writing the memoir, it was about five or six years ago. I thought the time has come. People I know, people I love have gone. They're gone. All my family, no more, no more. No more grandmother, grandfather, nobody, no one in the world. I'm an orphan right now. And I felt that, and it weighed heavily on me. And it weighed heavily also that these people I grew up with, my whole family, my Sicilian family especially, because my father had left us when I was 10, so I didn't know the Southern family. Although once in a while, my Aunt Mary would come in from the South and stay with us for a little bit, and I'd be enamored with her. I was like eight or nine. I was completely fascinated by her and her accent, Southern accent. So when anyone ever calls me honey, I just melt. Hi, honey, they say, and I just faint. But anyway, the <laughs> <clears throat> long and short of it is that I thought about these people, my grandmother, my all the people who worked so hard in their life, worked so hard just to maintain a life, just to maintain decency, to maintain the table. My mother, you know, had to go out and work. She worked when she was maybe 12 or 13. She never went to high school. She was in a garment center. All her life was work, work, work. My grandmother, when she came here, was a child still and hardly spoke English. And when we were in the house, she didn't speak anything but a Sicilian dialect. She was almost blind and she couldn't work and do anything. She tried so hard just to sew things together. But what I'm trying to say is I felt I wanted much, very much to say that they lived, that they were there on this planet. And they weren't famous. They weren't celebrities. They weren't, you know, world shattering people who did world shattering things. But they did a decent, beautiful, and honorable life, mm. and a beautiful life, and a generous life in a way. And I thought about it. When you, only when you get older, I think, you realize how much your parents have done for you and how much they mean to you. And it takes a long time to get it. I think we expect everything to be given to us as children. We think it's, just, it's owed to us. You know, our food on the table is owed to us. No, it's not. And so I felt I wanted to write about them. I wanted to write about my wild and very crazy and charming father and this Rex father of mine who... I was a Southern radical. I mean, I think he was the only communist in the neighborhood. <laughs> I, don't think there was, I don't think there was one communist from Savannah, Georgia, probably in the history of the world or ever before or since. <laughs> I want to pause and give listeners an idea of the memoir before we dive straight into your oh, parents. Oh, the memoir is about my growing up in the Bronx. It's about my childhood with my grandparents, my grandmother, my father, yes, and for a while, and my mother. And it goes all the way from the Bronx by wanting to be an artist at 15, dropping out of high school to become a painter with the imagination I had of going to Paris and saving money. I didn't speak French. I had no money. I was going to go to Paris and I was going to become a painter because after all, in Paris, the French love artists and they take care of them and I'd be nurtured there and I'd become a person with a studio and I'd model and a beautiful muse and all the fantasies you have when you're 15. And so yeah. part of the book is about that. And part of the book is about studying art at the Art Students League, which was a failure. And then eventually going to City College 
and Mexico, and then Havana to meet Hemingway, to see Hemingway. And Mexico to study Mexican art, Mexican mural painting, especially Mexican pre-Columbian art, which I did for a while. The latter part of the book is dedicated to my miserable years at Syracuse University, where it snowed on my head and it's still snowing on my head. Maybe you could tell us a little about the way you structured the book, because I think that something you achieve so well is you have the point of view that it's not told all kind of in recollection. There's a real immediacy in many of the chapters, and then there are these footnotes, and that's where you kind of fill in what happens to people that we couldn't know. So you jump forward and back in time in a very compelling way in the book. So tell us about the way you decided to write the book. Well, thank you for synthesizing what it would have taken me a half hour to say. Uh, I think you're right. I think you're completely right. That's how I did it. I didn't write it as if I was just telling things to people. Oh, then I grew up in the Bronx, and then I went to school. No, no, no. I wrote it scenically. I wrote it as if I were writing a novel. I mean, much of the dialogue is recalled, sometimes from letters I wrote and other things, but it was really pretty authentic. It was scenic. I mean, I have settings in the kitchen. I have people talking. I mean, it wasn't just expository, totally. Almost none of it's expository. And the footnotes are important because, for example, there's a man in the book who was my father figure. Actually, he really became sort of my father in many, many ways. Took care of me in many, many ways. John Resco, who was in Danamora Prison, the Alcatraz of the North, was in prison for 20 years. It's in the book memoir. But I want to say that I wanted to tell you what happened to him, not just what I was living when I knew him. So the footnotes for him and all the people in the book, they bring you up to date. If they died, when they died, how they died, what became of their lives. So, for example, with Resco, he eventually went to Los Angeles and started writing for the Hitchcock TV series. That didn't work out too well, as much many things don't work out too well in Hollywood. And died in kind of poverty and blindness and uh, paralyzed. So I tell that story. I tell all the stories of all of these people. My former teacher, Leonard Ehrlich, who wrote a wonderful, wonderful, magical book when he was 25, became an overnight, overnight famous writer at 25. Leonard Ehrlich, he was a teacher of mine at City College. As I say, it was a novel about John Brown. And the New York Times, which I found the review, hailed him as one of the most important young American writers who had changed the course of American writing. This is the kind of fame he had. Mm. He could not finish another book. So I tell the story of his kind of sadness and his loneliness and his sense of self-defeat. And I put all that in the context of the, in the present. And then I, I carry it all to the footnote. The footnotes tell you more about what happened to him. I'd like to go back to the beginning of the book where you're a child and you describe the circumstances of growing up with your mother and your Sicilian grandmother. You live in a small apartment together. Your father is gone. Would you tell us what it was like to grow up in that house? Well, that's, I think, one of the reasons why I never wanted to write a memoir. I think one of the reasons I never wanted to write personal stuff was that, for one, it's very painful for me, even when I talk about it now. I mean, it wasn't dramatistic, it wasn't catastrophic, it wasn't, you know, shocking, I wasn't abused physically or emotionally. So I can't say that the recollections are recollections of a victim trying to make his way to survive. But it was powerful enough in my feelings about the loneliness I had mm-hmm. and the inability to talk to my grandmother very much because of our language barrier, although I tried to speak to her in Sicilian, but it was so crude. But mostly what it was is the gloom and, and sadness my mother was brokenhearted that my father had left. So basically, she would go to work in the day and struggle to keep the job, come back, have a little dinner, which my grandmother prepared, whatever we had. I don't want to over-exaggerate this, but many times we just did not have food. We had no food. There was almost nothing to eat. And very often we had to go to my, my aunt and uncle's house to be fed. So that's very hard for me to talk about. 
It seems so strange that in America, in a major city, that we would live like that, but we did. And so there was times, for example, when I had no, we had no money for electricity. We couldn't pay the light bill. We had no light and maybe we were lucky to still have gas. Those are the kinds of recollections that are very painful. And also because I couldn't do anything about it. I was a kid and what can a kid do? I mean, I started working when I was 10 years old. I admitted I was able to get a job. I started working in the summers to help out. I looked big for my age, so they didn't question me. And I worked for a grocery store, and I worked later for a butcher store to deliver things. So all of it was really a childhood that was stunted in a certain sense. But you see what happens, when I speak to you now, I get very emotional about it. But part of it, the feeling is, these two women are so important to my memory and my life as I lived it and as I live it now. They were heroic to me when I think about it. This is a very different time in the world. I mean, now we understand, how I put it, maybe we better understand now how women have to live in this world with men who have power over them. My mother very often was, I won't mention it in the book, I try to do it very gently. She was approached by people to go out with them and she didn't want to. Sometimes she lost her job. I, I can't mm -hmm. ever forget that. So I feel my childhood was sadness because I, I loved them both so much and I could not do very much to help their sadness. My mother would go into bedroom after work and read her romantic novels. I hear her crying at night. This is very sad for a child. You know, it's very hard for a child. So that's why a lot of writing the memoir was painful to me. I guess in short, that's what I'm trying to say. It's interesting. Your childhood sounds so difficult, but that it also gave you this room for your own self-invention and creativity and that you had, you were very self-possessed in what you wanted, that you went after despite the day-to-day -day struggles that you decided to become a painter at, how old were you, 13? I was 15 and a half. I had written these incredible, wonderful novels, Lust for Life and the Gauguin book, Moon and Sixpence. And they were so the portraits of writers and the portraits of their life and how exciting it was and glamorous it was and wonderful it was, it moved me. But also I liked to draw. I liked all of that. So I enjoyed it. So then I, I wanted to be an artist more than anything. I wanted to be a painter. I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be, you know, someone who had friends and, and cafes and romances. So I dropped out of high school to do that. Yes, you're right. You're right. I had to create my life. We all do. We all have to create ourselves. Some circumstances are easier. Entry to life is easier. Maybe there's access that's easier. But I had help. In the novel, you see there was a woman in the building, a wonderful woman, brilliant intellectual woman, who brought me to John Resco, in fact, and gave me books to read and told me about, you know, Rambo for the first time in my life. I was 15, 16. So there were aids along the way. We all need help. All of us, all of us need help. Some point in our life more critically than others. And I was very, very grateful. I am grateful. And I still have memories of those people. That's why also they're in the book. Mm -hmm. It's in a way saying, thank you now. I'm thanking you now. Maybe it's too late. Maybe I couldn't do it when I was younger. I didn't know how. I wasn't adept enough to express my feelings or my gratitude. So my small way of saying, look, I don't want them to disappear. Resco, literally, Caroline in the book, all of them. That's really beautiful. I'm also struck, to piggyback on some of these ideas, there's a series of chapters, I guess, in the book where you're kind of exploring how you come to terms with the disparity between what I guess we might call a naive fantasy about bohemian art living and art making in this kind of charmed realm of Paris, and then the reality of being an artist. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, because on the one hand, I'm interested in hearing you talk about whether or not you think that naivete was useful in that moment, that like maybe we do need some kind of animating fantasy? Well, the 
specific was that when I went to the Art Students League, I was working during the week and I had classes on Saturday for life drawing. Mm-hmm. Because I think that in my generation, I believe, for example, my generation I was 15, what I believed was in order to be a serious artist and not just splatter paint on the canvas and make some abstract expressionist fakery, I thought then, you have to learn how to draw. It was a paramount to make the figure, to make a life, to make a figure. Like Picasso had done it, Matisse had done it, they all studied it. So I thought, so I went to the Art Students League and there was the rude awakening. The two rude awakenings were that I was inept, unable to do it. And I was mocked for it. And that hurt me. It was very brutal. Any person who teaches, and any person who teaches writing or painting, or anything like that, who humiliates the students with the theory that if they can survive it, they'll be able to meet the world, that's not pedagogy, it's sadism. And you talk uh, about a teacher cruel. that did that to you, right? The one that you were drawing a yeah. foot, I think, and he said, yeah. oh, those are galoshes. <laughs> what, was she wearing galoshes, he said? And, you know, people tittered, but they came over to me after the students. I was a kid, and they were all older. Of course, they were 20s, 30s, 40s. Mm. And they came, don't worry about it, he's just a jerk. But I felt terrible. I felt I couldn't do it. I didn't know how to do it. And I said, I can't do it. And I gave it up. You know, I just gave it up. I was always writing poetry and writing. And then I sort of moved along the areas where I thought I had more strength and more power. The bohemian world, that world of Paris, of course, I didn't go to Paris. I couldn't adjudicate this reality. I never had the money. I was very late in life. So I go to Paris and actually live in Paris, finally. And when I got there, by the way, just to say parenthetically, I was just as enamored as I would have been when I was a kid. I mean, I felt the Paris I went to see in the 60s was still Paris. Now it's a mall. Now it's like Disney World. But the disillusionment, no, I was never disillusioned with fellow writers and poets and painters, friends who I have right now. It may not be as glamorous as I once thought it was. I thought, you know, basically you sit in cafes and you talk and you drink wine all the time. That was the (laughs) idea when I was a kid. But no, the disillusionment isn't that. The disillusionment is, for example, how so much of art is basically conditioned on the marketplace. Mm, I'm still naive to think, hoping to think that there are principles, aesthetic principles that really have penetration and meaning into people's lives and that publishers are not just purveyors of texts or units, whatever they call it now, but they have conscience and they believe in writing and believe in literature. There probably was a time when it was more true. I'm sure it was more true. Now the corporations have taken over. Every editor is frightened about making enough money from the books they have bought to keep their salary and keep their job. So it's a fearful place, I think. People are fired left and right. You can't think of literature then in the same way and publishing in the same way as coordinating or as collaboration. That's disillusioning. And I still am stupid enough to think that there must be a place in this world. And sometimes I think there is. For example, I think the New Directions publishers who have published the most wonderful, most important modernist literature of the time, including Guna Barnes, who no one would publish. Sure. That's extraordinary. And they still kept that. They published Bolaño before he got famous. They published most marvelous people. So I still think maybe there are pockets of it there, but they can't be involved in the commercial world the way that the giant publishers are because they have to make all this money for people. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Frederick Tudin, author of My Young Life. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation.
We have John Waters in the studio with us today. John is the author, most recently, of Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder. It's a memoir. And John is here to recommend a book. John, what book are you going to recommend? Well, I've been on the, I'm on planes every minute, so I'm reading Moby's new book, which I really like. Called, I think it's called Venna Fell Apart. Oh, and- a, con- a controversial recommendation. Why? Well, because he got into this oh, argument. I, I know, and I read that. I don't know what she was complaining about. He's so respectful to her in the book. He doesn't say one negative thing. It's not sexual. It's not anything. I was yeah. mystified when I read that because he seemed like a perfectly innocent anecdote to me. And then he apologized. I, I don't well, get he it. Well, had, he had to cancel the book tour. He did? He, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe I haven't gotten, maybe she comes in later. I'm not finished, <laughs> but I, I didn't see anything really. Uh, I actually think the book's really funny and good, and I liked his first, this is kind of volume two of it. You mm-hmm. know, I like the first one a lot. I'm a fan of Moby. I like all his music. He did the credit sequence for Cecil B. DeMented. I asked him to come in, and he took all sound-alike movie 50s themes and scratched them and ruined them and put them all together like a, like a terrorist had taken hold of a Hollywood orchestra. So <laughs> I'm, I think he's really, I'm a big music fan of his. And the book's great. I don't know. I, I didn't seem didn't seem that offensive to me. I'm not her, but he certainly didn't describe sex with her. I mean, it wasn't like any kind of you know. I don't know. Yeah. Do you usually mild to me, but read memoirs. Is yeah, that a I like memoirs. Genre? Yeah, yeah. No, I like all kinds of book. I like fiction. I'm on a big kick of Clarice. What's her name? Inspector. Yeah, I love oh, her that's because a good one. she's really good because she just writes about nothing. About when you're just sitting there not thinking of anything, she writes a whole book about that, which is pretty hard to do. So I've been reading a lot about her lately. Um, I'm always, I always have one or two books with me. I forget what else I have in my suitcase. Uh, Kevin Killian, I kind of like him oh, too. Oh, that's a good yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, Kevin Killian's new book is Fascination. Yeah, yeah, is that that's what it's good. Called? Yeah, I'd recommend that. Yeah, yeah, we should probably introduce uh, Moby and um, Clarice Spector are, are pretty well known, but Kevin Killian is well, he's a uh, yeah, I guess a him. gay writer, but what's that mean? Today? You know, he well, writes, he's up uh, in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, right? he's really yeah. good, and I've read a lot of his books. I think mm-hmm. he's. Um, Quite clever and smart, and they're memoirs in a weird way of his life turned fiction, I think. But um, he's pretty edgy. He's not Dennis yes. Cooper, but in that school a little, and I'm a huge fan of Dennis Cooper, and he, Dennis Cooper makes really good movies now, too, I think. It's true. Um, and he's married to Dodie Bellamy. Yes, he is. Which yes. is, who is another yeah. excellent writer. Who we can't say her title of my favorite book she wrote on the air, probably. Cunt Norton. Yeah. We're just going to go ahead and <laughs> yes, do it. We can. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Will you tell us the title of the book again? Two books I'd recommend is Then It Fell Apart, Moby's new memoir, which I found charming and funny and very, very revealing and really kind of how he beat alcoholism and everything. Mm-hmm. So I like that very much. And the other one I like is Kevin Killian's book, which is called Fascination, which is kind of a gay memoir with a lot of edge in it. So right. those would be the two I'd recommend. That's a good duo. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We've been talking to John Waters. His most recent book is Mr. Know-It-All. Thanks, John. Thanks. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Frederick Tudin, author of My Young Life. You also in the so book, good. it also seems even when you're planning to go to Paris, you're reading a book by George Moore from, I don't know, the turn of the century yeah. when he goes to Paris and becomes an artist and you're kind of like paging through it, wondering how he did it. And then he reveals, oh, he inherited 
money from his father. And so it was really easy for him to just go and be an artist. Um, and you think, God, I was a fool for thinking there was some other way. I think yes. the book does a really good job of setting up. You say that it's a thank you to all these people who helped you along the way, but it also kind of catalogs the so- certain social conditions. You know, you were really good at like mentioning the price of things. Here's how much it costs to go on the subway, <laughs> to go to the bookstores. You know, here's how much it costs to take a class at the Artist League. And I think that is subtle, but it, it definitely speaks volumes about how someone, you know, at the time was able to break into the arts and, and just mentally, as I was reading it, of course, I was comparing prices and possibilities and thinking, oh, it it does seem harder now in some ways. Is that because you grew up without money, you were obviously aware of class early on. Is that something you wanted to weave into the book as you were writing it? I think in part, I'm sorry, I certainly agree with you that it's much the more difficult for your generation. I assume you're all very young. It's much more Not difficult for your generation. <laughs> well, How nice of you. We really appreciate that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was teaching all my life. I was taught at City College where I had been an undergraduate. And when I got my doctorate, they kept me on until I became a professor there. And I felt, I think, of course, City College meant the world to me because it was free when I went there. And it meant the world because we had the best education. It was once called the proletarian Harvard. I felt we got the, we were treated exquisitely with dignity and with, we weren't made to feel we were poor kids and that we were part of the world and we really would be part of the world. So I feel this, I feel this deep imperative to help young people. And I've had some remarkable students some have become very famous and they became men, my mentors in a certain way. It was very comical in the way how they bossed me around. <laughs> but I, uh, I felt, you know, you have to pay back. You have to give back. You have to give back. Otherwise, what's the point? So I think, yes, the idea of struggle, I mean, it, 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 the idea of struggle, I, that's what I'm going back to your question about why I did the memoir, what, maybe why I waited so long, because I don't want to fall into the trap of saying, poor me, look at the terrible life I had, what a terrible childhood I had, and yet I came through. The kind of thing I would despise if I read that. Mm-hmm. I don't want anyone to feel in reading that that's what I've done. I guess, I guess what I've said to say is, yes, I, I told the truth. I told the truth about things like prices. Now, for example, when I had my first apartment on my own in Manhattan, uh, on Avenue C and D, on 8th Street. My rent was $26 a month. I worked in a bookstore. My, 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 my annual hourly wage was $75 or $1.25. I had to work a lot to pay the rent, but I could do it. I could pay the overhead. I can pay those basic facts of life right. by myself. And of course, I had no time to write. That was the other part of it. So these are, these are the equations. I mean, there's a, there's a real factor in everyone's creativity. It's a real, money is a factor. You, know, you can't get around it or lie about it. So I, I think that uh, for some people, the struggle is harder than for others. And maybe the struggle is also the thing that makes it exciting or the struggle that makes you feel that you've achieved something independently of every other person or thing on, on your own. Of course, that's a lie because you're never independent. You're always relate, relying on other people and other things. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right. Also, you know, I might say, you say as this comes into my head, one of the most important books of my life is Walden, is Thoreau. And I love how, how Thoreau itemizes things, like the cost of beans, or the cost of a hoe, or the cost of a chair. I think it just nails it. I think it just tells you everything. The here and now, the marketplace reality, and the, the exchange of time, the time for the, for the thing itself, how much time you put to buy a chair. I think those are fascinating things. 
And I guess I wanted some of that reality in, in my memoir. I wanted to say it's not just an abstract person trying to a luft dimension, you know, man in the clouds thinking about becoming an artist. What were the what were the what were the things about it? What 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 were the costs of it, so to speak? Mm-hmm. The time and emotional and the, the economic costs of it. It's funny that you mentioned Walden because that seems to be um, a sort of a foundational text of an independent man sort of not needing anybody else. But you, um, and listening to you talk, that part of what really drove this memoir was a sense of responsibility to the people you grew up with and who had helped you along the way. When did you... Absolutely. When did you feel this sense of responsibility develop and how? Oh, I think that comes very early. I mm-hmm. think that comes very early. I think it comes when I started working in, to support my family at ten, at the age of ten. I mean, I was every summer. I, I did. I gave my money to my my mother to help us to help us live. So I felt I of course I, I felt that sense of responsibility very very early. And uh, what I wanted to say also is that about the sense of the self reliance part of me, you know, the part that you have to that that in, in its worst conditions and its worst approach, it's, it leads you to kind of it leads you to a kind of horrible capitalist fascism. You know, you can make it on your own stuff, and it's not true. Uh, maybe some exceptional cases, some rare discovery, someone found something extraordinary and became billionaire. But most of most working people just don't have that, that, that luxury. Well, you know, I think the thing is, I don't know, I guess I, I'm guessing it's like self-analysis about this, but I think that the childhood I had and the feeling of, I can put the word camaraderie among my, in my family, of generosity, of kindness, I felt that, that it, it, it came into my system. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I hope I can, uh, you know, abide by those feelings uh, until I die. Uh, and and uh, I, by the way, the notion of the artist as a, the fountainhead notion, the Ayn Rand idea, you know, that the, you're independent of the world and uh, the world is Philistine and you have to fight the thing. There's a part of me that believes that. Mm-hmm. I do think that there's a Philistine world. I do think that there's a ultra horrible, know nothing world. Uh, who don't, not, not, that not only that they do not care for culture, as I would say culture, but actually despise it and loathe it. And or anti, uh, There's a system of anti-intellectualism in this country that's so deep. So I'm not, you know, I, I, I recognize that, but I, I, I think that all serious artists, real artists, true artists, have to struggle against that and fight against it and keep their will together to do the work that they believe in at its most and its maximum. And not fall prey to the thinking you have to serve some idea of what a publisher wants or a gallery wants. No, I do believe that. That may, that may be seen really old-fashioned in a way. You know, that, that sense of, of striking out on your own, doing the work on your own, believing your work and fighting for your work. And doing the work you really want to do, not because it means to anyone else, but the work you want it to be read, you want it to be seen. But you have to believe in the work. You have to believe what you're doing is true to yourself. And so in that sense, it might be that Emersonian view of self-reliance, that's where it may have stuck with me, or the Waldian idea of you know, making it striking out, listening to a tune of a different drummer, as he puts it. I think that's vital. Otherwise, all art becomes homogenized. All literature becomes homogenized. All, all great books in my mind go against the grain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe I'd say a general, great generalization, but that's how I feel. All great books go again or have gone against the grain. They may later be incorporated into the system because they, the system sort of sucks into everything and everyone homogenizes it and makes it generally, generally acceptable. Uh, but I think that's the case. The Van Gogh, for example, is yeah. a perfect example. Fred, yeah. 
I'm I'm wondering yeah. as you were writing this book, maybe you know, jumping off this idea of, of self reliance and going against the grain, if you were we're talking about all these people that helped you, all these things that helped you become the artist that you are. Did you feel haunted at any point looking back at your story thinking, oh, if if it, you know, when you, when you start tracing, you know, these kind of twists of fate, you know, and it can feel like if I hadn't met that person, if I hadn't done this, if I hadn't been introduced to that, maybe I wouldn't be who I was. I mean, did you start to think about that at all? This idea of, you know, some form of destiny versus happenstance, circumstance. I mean, I would think looking back closely at, at your own life, those questions might have arisen for you. Well, of course I feel that. Of course I feel that. I feel that at every turn, I, it would have been, um, I, I, if it hadn't been some stroke of fate, if you want to call it, or some stroke of luck or by whatever it was, I don't know what would have, I don't know what would have happened to me. I, I, I really don't know what would have happened to me. I mean, uh, at the end of the end of the memoir, I write about meeting this woman, an Italian journalist from Rome, who was living here and working here as a journalist. And um, I and I was hoping to say more about it when I continue the memoir, when I have the second part of it. Um, Here's a case in point. I was working in the, I was working in a bookstore seven days a week when I met her. I was about turning 24 years old, to 23 or 24. My life was still life of a, of a, a would-be, a wannabe, I, a, a person who sat in the Figaro Cafe, which I could, have, I could have sat the rest of my life gladly if I had the chance to do it. Uh, i sit in the cafes and go out with waitresses and have fun. And not, I wasn't the drinking in those days, but talking a lot with other poets and writers like Jack Michelin, the kind of extraordinary character is in my novel, a poet that Jack Kerouac loved, by the way. And, uh, and I would have had a life like that and always thinking, well, I'm going to write a book. One day I'll write a book. One day I'll do this. But nothing would have happened. Nothing would have happened. I would have continued on that way until finally, uh, who knows, what would become a walk in a bookstore. There are no more bookstores. So I met this wonderful book. Yeah, you, you think about that. I mean, you, you think about it. There's not even a bookstore to work in. You can't. So I met this wonderful woman, older than myself, European, as I say, Italian. I can only put it this way. It transformed me. It transformed me. It just, it just t- took me to another life. She was working. She had no money. She didn't support me. I worked all the time. But just her love for me and our collaboration together, our complicity in life, her kindness to me and her absolute sophistication. I remember one day she said to me, it was a cocktail party for Italian journalists. And we were at the plaza or something like that. I'd never been there. I never walked in. I mean, maybe I walked into the drinking part of Oakville, maybe. But I'd never been to a kind of grown-up, and I was almost 25, to a grown-up party. I went to, you know, bohemian parties, bring-your-own-bottle parties, and <laughs> hang out in the kitchen. <laughs> and, you know, that kind of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And maybe you, maybe, you, maybe, you, maybe you get drunk and pass out on the couch, something like that party. And here I was, and, and, and I felt everything in every way possible inadequate. I felt I wasn't dressed properly. I didn't have the right jacket. I didn't have, I didn't have any jacket. I only thought I had a jacket, a sports jacket. And I remember as we approached the hotel, I said, I can't, I can't go. I, I can't go, Simona. Her name was Simona Morini. I can't go. I'm, I'm too nervous. And she said to me, not with, not with the way I suppose, maybe if I had been with a girlfriend my age or, or another type of bohemian like myself, who would have said to me, like, fuck you, I'm going to go anyway, or some kind of thing like that. You can't, you can't do this to me. She said to me, look, Fred, 
you can go, you can, you can, you can go home if you want, and I'll even go home with you. Or you can take a chance and see what. <laughs> you can take a chance and see what happens. And if you feel very uncomfortable, we'll go home, we'll go home together. That meant the world to me. It was the way I could take the next step, the way I could come out of myself. I could never have had that happen. I could never, I don't know what would have happened to me if it wasn't for her. We had 10 extraordinary life, 10 years together. We translated two books together from Italian and French. We, we were in collaboration, we were in complicity. We had, I never experienced it before or after. And that was the transformative part. People do change you. People can change you for good or for bad. And I learned that very deeply. I remember when I was in analysis, I remember so six years of a worthless and ridiculous analysis. A woman said to me, well, you know, you can't change. I mean, you can, people can't change you. You have to change yourself. That's a lie. It's not true. Yeah. And you can, you can be changed terribly to the negative and be, become demoralized and, and brutalized by people. And you can change for the better. It's just, and that's what I think all, all great pedagogy is. I think it's whatever, whatever the text is, whatever the, the, the thing you're teaching is, you can change something for the better. And I, I hope that's, that's what I felt about that relationship. The other ones were all helpful along the way, Resco, Ehrlich, Caroline, all those people. But the real, the real thing happened later on. I was just approaching 25. So, Fred, unfortunately, we're going to have to end there. But I just want to say that is a really beautiful story. And that's just one of the kind of many beautiful stories that uh, listeners will find in your book. And I, I guess in closing, I kind of wish that everyone finds that I know exactly the type of relationship that you're talking about. I have that myself. And I really wish that everyone has somebody like that that gives them the push and the support when they need it. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Fred Tutton, author of My Young Life. Fred, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, dears. Goodbye. Have a good week. Take care. We've been speaking with Frederick Tutin, author of My Young Life. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 